Welcome to The Centrist Podcast, now hosted by me, Will Barber-Taylor. Today we are talking about the environment with former Labour MP Melanie On. Climate change is one of the largest issues the world faces after the coronavirus pandemic. We have the enormous task of rebuilding our economy whilst fighting climate change. The government has set a target of an 80% reduction in carbon emissions by 2050. Today, we will look at how we can reach this target or even surpass it. We will also talk about what kind of energy sources we should use, what role taxes can play in promoting environmentally friendly products, and lots more in this episode of the Centre Think Tanks podcast, The Centrist Podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You are currently the Deputy Chief Executive of Renewable UK, which helps companies to increase their use of renewable energy sources. What government policy do you think would help these organisations most in the move to renewable energy sources? That's not quite what we're here for, I have to say, Will. We're, uh, so we're a trade association. Renewable UK is a trade association, and we represent the interests of organizations that are working within the renewable sector. So um, some of our members of companies that you will have heard of will be companies like Scottish Power Renewables, um, Orsted, Vattenfall, Equinor, um, and those, those are the big developers who are um, building offshore wind farms and onshore wind farms. So, um, so those are the big uh, developers that are um, producing offshore and onshore wind farms. Uh, and then we have um, a whole range of other members as well who are engaged in um, the supply chain for those uh, activities. So they'll be building the actual turbines themselves or the blades. So companies like Siemens, Vestas, GE, um, and then other companies that will be providing a whole host of different services, um, right from the early planning stages of those wind farms, right through to construction, development, operations and maintenance, um, all of the training, all of the health and safety that goes um, into that. Um, and then we also have other companies that have got interest in um, slightly smaller technologies that will provide that clean energy uh, for the UK so wave and tidal for example and we're looking at moving into the newer forms of technology that have just got government go ahead really so things like hydrogen and increasingly uh, battery storage as well. Have you seen um, a change in um, uh, demand for these kind of uh, industries in the past year thanks to COVID do you think that this has made people uh, perhaps think more about the use of energy and wanting to work more with renewable energies than perhaps they might not have done prior to the start of the pandemic? Yeah I mean I think that there's there's been some record-breaking moments uh, certainly in the last couple of years just in terms of the amount of renewably sourced electricity that we've been using. So we've had completely coal-free days, um, which is the first time that we've ever been able to manage that. Obviously, what we're looking for is having continuously coal-free days over extended periods of time. Um, but we've seen uh, wind in particular increasing the amount of clean energy that it's providing. And from a consumer perspective, the availability of uh, companies that are providing the option to have your electricity provided from entirely clean sources 
is growing all of the time. So uh, companies like Ovo or um, Octopus Energy, for example, you can go um, and, and switch to them and you will be guaranteed that the electricity that you're using for your home is coming entirely from renewable sources, which is fantastic for people who want to make that choice. Um, and they have uh, the way that um, the, the new companies are, are operating because they aren't constricted by uh, the, the way that the old energy companies were formulated, they can make sure that they continuously move you to the cheapest tariff as well. So they can make sure that you know when everything is going to be at its cheapest. So your bills uh, are, are, are better managed. So there are, there are lots of options and opportunities and the pandemic I think has probably made people realize exactly how much energy they do use when they're at home. Mm. We've seen um, across the whole country, actually there was a dip in, electric in electricity usage just because people weren't traveling as much. They weren't mm. going to work. So offices weren't open. Um, but we have seen much more domestic use. Uh, and so that means that people are a bit more conscious, I think, of what it is that they're doing in their everyday lives um, and perhaps what they might like to see their future look like. So while people have had fewer cars on the road, while they've been going out and um, using and appreciating their immediate environment, while things have been a bit quieter, well, you know, how do they continue to have... Um, cleaner air, uh, you know, less polluted immediate environments, um, you know, are there alternative ways of working that might appeal to them that might also have the consequence of using uh, less of the traditional fossil fuels. Uh, so I think that that has changed the way that people think about their daily lives and how they plan to carry on really over over the next over the next few years I, I hope that it isn't just a a short-lived thing I hope mm. that it is something that embeds itself into the long term of, of how we work because I think people's work-life balance has been um, adjusted uh, quite significantly um, where there have been extended travel restrictions for example. Mm. To what extent do you think um, the ability of companies uh, to work um, in ways that are uh, better for the environment is in some way um, focused and, and forced upon them to a certain extent by where the companies are located. So, I mean, you mentioned Siemens earlier, and of course that has a massive presence on um, Humber side on the uh, Humber coast. Do you think that where companies are based in particular parts of the country will focus them in a particular direction in what, types of renewable energy they'll be using i think absolutely i think um you know the the location of companies uh, and their proximity to their biggest customers mm. um absolutely plays a part and we've seen situations in the past where um factories for example have been established but they have been in the wrong place and we haven't been able to see them sustained they haven't been able to provide the level of service that they're uh, developer customers have needed um, and so ultimately that's led to them not being able to be competitive um, so yes the location is incredibly important and we can see all the way along the east coast all the way from Aberdeen um, down uh, you know the the Tyne and Tees coast Humberside um, Anglia and the Kent coast it's um, it is the the east coast that is really um, being very successful so far 
at harnessing the opportunities, not only for providing services to the offshore wind developments that are taking place, but also um, having the operations and maintenance bases um, in those key areas um, so that they're able to easily access their developments. And we see a little bit more of that on the, uh, on the West Coast, um, particularly around Cumbria, Liverpool, North Wales, um, but it is mainly concentrated along that East Coast. And that's because that's where the natural resource is. That's where we've got easily accessible, very windy spots. Um, Tax-based regulations is something that the Centre uh, Think Tank has campaigned uh, for for uh, a large amount of time. It means products that have uh, taxes placed on them if they're particularly damaging to the environment and the money can be used for research uh, to give money to uh, low earners or to subsidise environmentally friendly alternatives. Would this be something you would support? Or are there better ways to move businesses towards environmentally friendly alternatives? I mean, you know, taxing is certainly a, a route to changing behaviour. Um, I think if you look at, I don't know, plastic bag tax, for example, you can see there, although I'm probably not a healthy advert for fizzy drinks tax either because I'm sat here drinking a fizzy drink but um it does have it it actually I won't be taxed because it's a max so <laughs> no sugar nothing in it um so um so it can change behavior um and I think that increasingly government probably will look to apply carbon-based taxes uh to reduce transportation to reduce the risk of um companies offshoring some of their responsibilities um you know it seems completely ridiculous that we would set incredibly high recycling targets for example and then allow the recycling to be sent to another country um and go into their landfill rather than us taking responsibility for our own rubbish so i think that there's um you know that th there is a, a route by which that can certainly have an impact and I think that it's quite a rapid impact as well, because I think if we're looking at the, the, the target for reaching net zero 2050, that isn't a great deal of time. And sitting and waiting for companies to come to the realisation that they need to take more rapid action in the way that they conduct themselves um, and how they uh, review their own um, kind of carbon emissions um, just from their just from their business, you know, whatever it is that they are producing or doing, um, you know, we could be waiting uh, quite a long time. But I do think that there have been um, moves in the right direction, particularly from those high emitting uh, organisations to uh, companies to look at what they can do to reduce their carbon emissions in line with that 2050 target. Um, I think this year, particularly, companies will see themselves under much greater scrutiny for a variety of reasons i think public consciousness you know there is much more awareness of um of the planet and and people's concern about climate change and the impact that that will have on them and future generations and wildlife and the broader environment um but also you know there has been pressure from government um that says you you, you can't continue to um run your business in the way that you have done because it is not going to be sustainable for us and we have 
we have made these uh, agreements, international agreements to hit these targets and we need everybody to play a part. Um, but it does rely on government pulling everybody together, getting them heading in the right direction um, and providing support where it's necessary. Because I think where we see some companies, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sat in the Humber, as you know, um, and, you know, it is one of the most polluting uh, industrial areas around the country. We've got oil refineries, we've got logistics, we've got um, uh, high intensity food processing, which requires a lot of refrigeration. So that means that it's um, uh, problematic. We've got steelworks just down the road as well. Um, you know, a, 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 an active shipping industry, all of those have got uh, pretty big consequences on the environment. Um, where you've got big companies, you can see that they would invest and they would, um, for example, Philips 66 are now in partnership with Orsted and the University of Sheffield to undertake a Gigastack project, which is about reducing their um, emissions um, and, and, and cleaning up their role in the environment. Um, but for SMEs, changing what they do, particularly if they're in, you know, in some form of manufacturing, uh, which tends to have a, a higher carbon emitting uh, percentage. How do they do it? Where do they start? What do they do? How can they get financing? Um, how quickly are we expecting them to change? Um, you know, to, and, and that I think requires quite a lot of conversation and quite a lot of discussion. And we're being quite slow to engage some of those companies and say, actually, it's not just um, the responsibility of government or it's not responsibility of of one kind of business or one kind of industry it's all of our responsibilities so um you know how do we help you to do that and and just taxing those people or <laughs> taxing yeah. those companies seems a pretty punitive way to behave mm. do you think that there's a um balance to strike between government passing certain things into law that make it uh, much more difficult for particular companies to um uh, emit dangerous fumes etc and encouraging them to not be doing those kind of things to shifting uh, to renewable energy or, or, or do you think that there isn't really a need for a balance that it has to be one way or the other more government intervention or more freedom for businesses to <laughs> to convince one another that uh, they need to use more renewable energy I think um think that legislation incentivizes companies and I think mm. that in that market environment they do tend to get quite competitive and so mm. uh, you know the the race to be the greenest company the race to clean up its act the race to improve I mean doing all mm. those things does improve their standing in terms of their public relations and and how they're viewed and so hopefully you know, if they're seen as being a responsible company for their customer base, it means that they will be more successful. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, the, the legislation is good leverage. And the way that I've seen, you know, the question really is, is the legislation going far enough? Does it mm. put enough pressure? Does it have enough checkpoints within it to ensure that companies are absolutely focused? I mean, working in... Um, in, in renewable uh, in the renewable sector you know we see some of the the big petrol oil and petrol companies that are now moving into renewables they certainly do recognize that there is a need to 
shift their behavior and that actually within the UK, um, you know, the use of their product is going to decline. So why would they keep investing in something that's not going to be needed? Better for them to invest in something where there is interest and that is in the renewable sector. I suppose the question is more broadly, you know, how do we influence that mentality internationally um, so that we can ensure that, yes, we're playing our part as the UK, but for those companies, it's great that you're doing it with us. How can we encourage you to, to do more uh, internationally as well? For Particularly, you know, those, those big companies, um, they've got a very, very wide reach. Um, and there are a lot of countries that uh, are not in the same position that we're in, in the UK, to be able to rapidly develop and shift into uh, renewable sources. Um, so the companies hopefully will learn some lessons as, as they move into their transition in the UK and apply those internationally. In terms of um, the uh, way to influence international opinion, on uh, climate change. What do you hope will come out of um, COP26, which for those who don't know, is the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference, which is going to uh, occur in Glasgow uh, at the start of November this year? I think it's really exciting that, I mean, we've got, we've got two big international events in the UK this year, we've got G7. So uh, looking at international economy, um, which will be particularly relevant post COVID um, and also then COP26. And I think that the two, really link together because I think COP is going to largely be a discussion about how uh, green industries and tackling climate change can be the next phase. So a next kind of industrial revolution internationally. And that means that we need to take every single country along with us, um, that we need to look at the situation uh, in, in each country post-pandemic and see what kind of situation they find themselves in and uh, where green industries can help them to rebuild their economies um, so that they don't continue to be so reliant on fossil fuels um, and can start to make the steps that are needed towards a, a much greener um, economy base. That all sounds really laudable and welcome. Um, I, I don't imagine by any stretch that it will be easy or that it will be straightforward. Um, you know, we have um, a very particular position of, of privilege because we are uh, financially very secure in this uh, country. I know it doesn't feel like that for everybody, but you know, as a nation, we are quite resilient. And um, it means that you know, we have already made quite substantial progress in terms of utilizing uh, green energies, which is our, our, our biggest contribution to climate change in this country, um, as well as uh, transportation. So, what I would like to see is the UK being very sensitive to not just saying, this is what we do, aren't we fantastic? Um, but also trying to learn the lessons of other countries and what they're doing, um, because we still have quite a limited range of technologies that we are fully engaging in and fully utilizing. And I think we did have a, a bit of a policy hiatus in the early 2010s around uh, renewables. 
And I think we probably need to acknowledge that that might not have been the best thing. You know, we could have been much further forward, um, acknowledge our own failings whilst being able to demonstrate how things are, um, how things have improved. And I think that they have improved in terms of the policy positions and how they are therefore contributing to um, improving regional economies as well. Because, um, you know, the fact that we have got so many um, wind farms, particularly on the offshore side, that are um, regenerating port areas along the East Coast that have not had industrial uh, financing and, um, and support for a long time and suddenly is seeing that. Um, makes a, a strong case for saying it is possible to rebuild economies and where people might fear a loss of jobs, whether it's in mining or whether it's in oil and gas, um, that we can say there might not be the same volume of jobs, but there are still jobs. Um, and actually across the breadth of the renewable sector outside of wind, hydro and, um, and tidal, um, if you're looking at solar, if you're looking at infrastructure for increasing electrification, if you're looking at homes and how we uh, make homes much more environmentally friendly, there are a great number of jobs uh, in the green economy that all flow from that. So it can't just be a reliance on saying it's a like for like from those, uh, from those industries, but the range of jobs is, uh, is certainly something that's available and, uh, and helps those different regions around countries. Um, one of the most uh, controversial topics when it comes to energy production is nuclear energy. Uh, and the centre think tank has um, been so, uh, supporting a phase reduction to nuclear power. The Green Party wants to stop any new reactors being built. And some Conservatives uh, support new reactors. What do you think is the best course of action on the issue of nuclear power? It's, uh, it, it's not an area I mean we, we tend to focus on what we do well mm. and we tend to focus on our members um, activities I think that there is a point that says at the moment where we are is that we do not have sufficient uh, wind or solar or tidal or wave power to provide all of the energy that is needed in this country. And therefore, there has to be a mix. Um, in the future, obviously what I would like to see, <laughs> speaking on behalf <laughs> of my members, is that it is, it's all run on, uh, that it's all run on, um, on, on wholly uh, green uh, energy. Um, but, you know, the, the, the policy for providing energy in the country where there is high energy need um, and high energy consumption is, uh, is, is more challenging than that. And so I think that, you know, probably a, a recognition that that nuance exists is, uh, it, it's not very political because mm. if you're a political campaigner, then of course, you know, you <laughs> want to take a very clear perspective. You want to take a very clear view um, and it's a valid view. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, at the moment I, I feel much more comfortable saying very happy to champion the use of more renewables um, and our members are operating in wind and um, 
tidal and wave and increasingly hydrogen. Um, and that, that might be the, the route that uh, the other sectors take and, and start to look to move into as well. Um, just to um, turn to uh, something that has a certain impact on green energy, um, the EU referendum. And during the EU referendum, you supported remaining in the EU. Uh, but afterwards, you opposed um, a second referendum. You also voted for a common market 2.0 during the indicative votes. Do you see EFTA membership as a possibility in the future for the UK? I think uh, things are <laughs> things seem to be <laughs> so chaotic still yeah. in UK politics. I mean, I, I kind of thought that after Brexit, things might settle down. The pandemic really hasn't proven that, has it? You know, the world works in very uh, mysterious <laughs> ways. Um, and I think that there are certainly things that have come out of the agreement that was struck after the 2019 general election. Um, you know, the oven made deal, oven ready deal, whatever it was. <laughs> Um, that have not uh, haven't haven't panned out in the way that um, people who supported leave from the outset expected to see, and for those who were remainers would never have have hoped to have come to pass. And there are, I mean, I think that the violence in Northern Ireland at the moment is a, a direct consequence of the uh, border issues and holds a future that is, is fraught with potential problems about the future of the UK. Um, and so in terms of, you know, what, what relationship should we have with the EU in the future? Um, if this agreement is seen to have too many holes and too many problems, I think that, that Brexit zealots will probably say, no, you just need to let it bed in. They're just teething problems. Everything will be okay. Um, but I think that there will increasingly need to be substantial modifications that are made that will then put us in a position where we are lining up for some other agreement that is broader than what we have at the moment mm -hmm. that will not constitute full EU membership because I think that even, you know, talking about something like that at the moment I, I don't think it's actually very helpful for anybody who is very pro-european to start talking about it because i think it sets their argument back um you know there was a very clear actually it wasn't very clear was it but you know there was an outcome <laughs> and um and and it caused such disruption and such upset the idea of kind of going back into that whole debate all over again um doesn't doesn't seem to me to be something that would be particularly helpful for the country at the moment so um potentially i suppose is the answer um in a world where anything is possible um yes potentially EFTA is a is a route um I, I, it's so it's funny really though i mean you kind of look back and think you know there were lots of conversations about, you know, is, is it going to be Canada plus? Mm. Is it going to be Norway plus? Is it going to be common market 2.0? You know, should we have something like EFTA, um, which is, 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 a, is a Norway kind of agreement? Um, 
you know, and then we start talking about Australian style point systems. And I think, you know, the British public got incredibly confused and incredibly fatigued. Um, you know, uh, so the, yeah, I, I think that Europe is probably always going to be one of those issues that, that, that comes back. Um, but principally at the moment, I think the, the focus should be on preserving the unity of the United Kingdom, which is by no means a certainty right now. Trigger warning of sexual assault and rape. Finally, um, as an MP, uh, you pushed for victims' sexual history not to be heard during sexual assault cases. What else do you think we can do to prevent and tackle sexual assault? I did do that, and I'm yeah, I'm surprised that I, I'm surprised at you um, that that's one of the things that's come up because the thing that tends to come up more is the fact that I did start the campaign for misogyny to be included mm. as a hate crime, mm. which is where quite a lot of the uh, the wider conversations. Um, that I participated in as a parliamentarian around um, uh, rape, you know, the, the appalling number of rape convictions, the, um, the, the lack of um, investigatory resources available to police, the lack of confidence that victims have in the structures and systems that we have in place as a country to actually achieve any kind of justice. So that's where it all stemmed from. And um, and I still think that there is room, and I know that that campaign has has um, recently um, kind of been moved forward and, and incorporated into legislation, which I'm really pleased about. Um, but I think that there's probably, I'd, I'd like to see more done around that, because I just think that there is something about the basic um, treatment of other people and misuse and abuse of power that is happening across the piece that that seems to be um trying to silence people from even saying that they are unhappy in, in what's happening and then when it comes to conviction rates and when it comes to protection of victims that there's more that could be done in terms of victims of all crime, actually, not just, uh, you know, uh, sexually based violence, um, but victims generally, um, who very often, I think, feel forgotten in a process and don't feel that they necessarily have their voices heard and don't always get the justice that they think that they are going to get. Um, and then it makes me think about all of the issues around resourcing of our criminal justice system and the difficulties around that kind of conversation. Um, you know, we've got a reduction in access to courts, we've got fewer judges, we've got um, a move away from uh, juries, uh, the, the, the times that courts can sit has been reduced. Um, yeah, there's, there are lots and lots of issues around um, all of that. Um, and there's very little sympathy at the moment for those conversations, which is really difficult because um, we seem to have forgotten that, that our justice system is a, a fundamental part of our democracy. And it's only when you come to rely on it, I feel it's a bit like the welfare system, it's only when yeah. you need it that you find that there are many, many problems with it. But from the outside, when you're not using it or when you're not in contact with it, 
it's it's just kind of ethereal sat to the side and you don't uh, you don't really give it much of a second thought and any idea about spending more money on it you know just you know you think oh well it's all going for criminals being able to appeal when they shouldn't be able mm. to or you know judges pensions or something like that um yeah which really kind of debases a lot of the argument around the fact that that these things do need to be properly funded in order for them to work properly and it's for them to work properly for us for mm. all of us and for us to have a strong state and every time we kind of eke away at that then the state gets weakened mel neon thank you for coming on the center think tanks podcast thank you it's been fun <laughs>